Welcome to Mark Connor's podcast. For more information, visit markconnor.com.au. All right, welcome back to One Hub Podcast. It's such an honor to have you guys with us today. Uh, we're going to have such an awesome time today. We're going to have great discussions because we have a very, very, very special guest with us. Before I introduce the guest, we are joined with Heidi, the incredible Heidi. Adele. Hello. And Ashley Noel, the legend himself. Hey, hey. <laughs> um, like I said, we've got an amazing guest with us today. It is an immense privilege to have this person with us. Um, I don't know if this uh, person knows that I actually uh, have known of him and about him since I was a young kid because I went to City Life Church when I was young and maybe that gives it away a little bit. But we have the incredible Mark Connor joining us for the One Heart Podcast this morning. Let's give him a round of applause. Woo! Thank you, Tim. Good to be here. Thanks yeah. for the welcome. Uh, one day I'll catch up to my reputation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> not always, not always good. Not always good, but sometimes no. it's big, bigger than real life. You know? It's such an honor and pleasure to have you with us today, mate. Um, just for those who may not know you, like we're, we're going to go through your life today. Uh, we're going to hear a little bit about your perspective, and I know what you're going to share with us can be such immense value for the young adult community that we reach out to. But we'd love to just. I guess start off just for about five minutes. Just tell us a little bit about yourself for those who might sure. not heard your name. Well, thanks for your welcome. Uh, great to be on the podcast today. And um, big shout out to you guys for what you're doing, particularly during this lockdown. It's really great to be having conversations. I think, although we're, I don't like the term socially distant, we're physically distant, but hopefully socially connected. And yeah. it's just a, a great thing that you're doing, um, particularly for young adults. Um, you know, I think just sitting and watching it. The TV screen, um, we, we get a lot of screen time, but just to be able to engage with the conversation is fantastic. So a big plug for you. Um, yeah, I was born um, in Melbourne. I grew up in Blackburn South, went to Warramong Primary School, which has now been demolished and is a bunch of estate houses. Went to Blackburn uh, South High School. So um, first 10 years of my life into my teen years were here in Melbourne. Moved to America when I was um, nine and lived over there for 10 years in Portland, Oregon. I uh, was back and forth a couple of times. So I did my third form, I think it was, at Blackburn South High School. So went to America for 10 years, kind of became an all-American kid. Uh, my dad was um, running a Bible college over there. And so my sister married and stayed. I didn't really want to come back to Australia, but uh, my parents um, kind of did a deal that I'd come for a year and, and see how it went. So we came back when I was about 18. And so been here ever since. My wife, Nicole, um, she was born in Hamburg, Germany, grew up in South Africa. And I met her in Rockhampton, as you do. So we've got a little bit of the United Nations in our family. Some people think I'm South African or American or, you know, I went to America. I had to quickly change my accent because I remember when I first arrived, I said, my name was Mark. And a guy called me Mike for about 10 days. He goes, oh, Mark. Oh, Mark. So I had to learn to say my name is Mark Connor. Anyway, so we've got a bit of South African, German, American, Australian wow. mix. And so anyway, we've been married for 33 years. We have about three young adult kids and uh, couple of grand dogs and one granddaughter, Freya, who arrived in January. So that's our family. Um, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to be growing up. You know, I'm a preacher's kid, but kind of dabbled in a few things out of high school, did some cabinet making and worked as a printer and was into music. Um, so yeah, worked at a few jobs and some studies. And then I eventually came on staff at 
what was Waverley Christian Fellowship. So I was the music director there for many years back in the, mm-hmm. back in the day. And so did yeah. that for uh, quite a while. And then Nicole and I were youth pastors for five years. And then I was church administrator, believe it or not, um, uh, for a while and then associate. So I did 10 years of a variety of roles and then became the senior minister and uh, did that for 22 years. I was the third minister at yeah. Waverly wow. Christian Fellowship, now City Life Church. And uh, so it was pretty good innings. And then about three and a half years ago, uh, we had a transition, took some time off. And so now I'm doing a little bit of freelance work, a bit of coaching, a uh, bit of speaking, a bit of writing, and uh, an occasional podcast. <laughs> yeah. How's that? How's that? A quick, a quick bio. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. Very excellent. It's good. You can you can add more of this to your resume now. <laughs> yeah, we we are so um, I guess we're just a bit in awe of the longevity of your ministry. Um, you said was it twenty two years? You just said. Um, yeah, I was I was thirty two years on staff, so ten years in a variety wow. of roles, and then twenty two as the senior minister. So, yeah, as I said, that was a, that was a pretty good innings, and um, it was time yeah. for change after that. Yeah. Yeah, it's very impressive. One of the things that that is really at the heart of this podcast that we really like to explore is the idea of finding ourselves in the biggest story. Mm. And, um, and I guess one of the, the questions that we really want to find out from you, because we, we all have our own heroes of the faith and people that we've really, I guess, benefited from through uh, people who have grown us in our faith. And we were just wondering who, who are some of the people that you kind of inherited your faith from or who really um, directed your steps towards ministry and following Jesus? Yeah, it's a great question, Heidi. Um, for, for me, my parents, as I mentioned, I'm a, I'm a preacher's kid. My dad was um, a Bible teacher and involved in church work kind of all his life. So my parents um, really had a big impact on me. And, you know, unfortunately, not all preacher's kids survive or make it. You know, it's, a, it's not an easy gig uh, being a preacher's kid. And so I am often asked, you know, um, you know, how did it work for you? And I think for me, as I've reflected on it, first of all, my parents' example, that they they were the same on the platform as they were off the platform. So there was this, it's interesting, the word, the word integrity means there's an integration between who you present and who you really are. Mm. And so for me as a kid growing up, mm. it wasn't like my parents were one thing on the stage, one thing up front, and then another thing back home there was an integration in their life they you know they walked the talk they, they lived they practiced what they preached so that, that's a pretty big thing for me I, I think you know kids tend to do what they see not what they hear and so you know for me just seeing a life well lived was, was a big thing uh, another thing is that they didn't put pressure on me you know often as a preacher's kid if there was a bunch of us mucking around in trouble it's oh it was that connor kid you know like uh mm. I stood out, but my name was always mentioned. And, and I remember my dad would often say, okay, look, we'll take care of it. But look, Mark's just a normal boy like everybody else. You know, he, uh, he's not perfect. So I think some people think preacher's kids get extra holiness genes or something like that. You know, it, it, it's not true. And so my parents actually didn't pressure me. No, they had expectations. There were consequences, but they didn't pressure me to be perfect. Uh, that, that, that was a big one. Um, and they also made ministry fun. You know, we got to travel. I mean, who gets to go to America at age eight? Um, I got to meet some mm. amazing people. So they made life in the ministry a bit of an adventure. So I think all of those things definitely helped me uh, as a kid growing up. In addition to my parents, um, that 10 years in America was very influential. I was in a really good church there. 
And I had a youth pastor, a basketball coach, and a piano teacher who were all kind of probably mid to late 20s. And so when you're a teenager, you know, your parents, you know, they're influential. But as you hit those teenage years, as you know, your peers start to influence you more than your parents. Mm -hmm. And so having some kind of heroes, as you mentioned, Heidi, and some models, just that kind of decade above me was hugely influential for me. My, my youth pastor was Wendell. Wendell Smith, you might have heard of Judah Smith, his city yeah. church is a pretty big deal today. Well, well his father, Wendell, was my, was, was my youth pastor. Oh, yeah. and, and Wendell was just uh, like he believed in me. Um, he gave me opportunities. I became you know, part of a volunteer team. And so he, he was a big impact. Uh, my basketball coach, as I mentioned, my music director, you know, they, they were kind of just that decade above me. And it was kind of like, I really wanted to be like them. They, they were like those heroes and models. Um, mm. it, it's interesting in the young adult space. Um, you might have heard of a book by Gary, uh, sorry, David Kinnaman called You Lost Me. Um, it's an American study, but it looks at kids who grew up in church and leave church mm. and the reasons why they leave. And it's not so much that they leave. We often lose them. But one, one of the main factors was kids who grew up in church who left church said they didn't have an adult other than their parents that they considered a close friend. Mm. And I think that's pretty profound, you know, because yeah. you, you can be in a, a room of 100 teenagers and, and having a great time. But if no one knows your name, if, if there's not someone a bit older than you that goes, hey, hey, Mary, how, how'd your exam go? Or, hey, John, how'd you got the phone? You know, just having someone that next generation above you that knows your name, that's interested in your life, uh, has a huge mm -hmm. impact in people staying connected to church and to faith. And so I, as I read that data, I thought that it's really challenging for youth ministry today. And I think for wow. you young adults listening around uh, the podcast today, what a great mm -hmm. opportunity for you. If you think about all the teenagers in your church, mm -hmm. you know, just, just learn a couple the names look out for them take an interest in their life you'd be surprised how sometimes that's just the velcro that keeps them connected when they could easily drift out so so for well, me um heidi i, I had uh, yeah, my yeah. parents but a couple of really key leaders that they were fun that they were cool and, and i was learning from them but it was almost like they were kind of my heroes and, and they had a big impact on, on my on my faith well so amazing mate yeah yeah, yeah. You know, it sounds like that you've had heaps of people surrounding you and speaking into your life. And I think one of the things is young adults, uh, younger people and young adults sort of struggle with, and, you know, people that go into, you know, older as well, is how to recognize your calling. How do you, yeah. how do you understand what are you called for? And I think sometimes you can have people speak into you, but look, what for, I think the biggest struggle sometimes is what do I do? What do I yeah. put my hand to? What do I, how do I prepare myself? And there's almost like this analysis paralysis that goes on uh, yeah. for young adults just to, just to go this massive question of what do I do with my life? I wonder if you can give us a little bit of an insight into your experience and how you kind of found your calling, how God, um, when you were younger, how God sort of revealed that to you or what was your process? Yeah, it, it was definitely slow for me. I think that idea of calling, vocation, vision, whatever you want to call it, it's different for everybody. Some people kind of come out of the womb what they know and what they want to do. I never forget talking to Brian Houston and, and he said, you know, as a kid, he saw his dad get on airplanes and he said, when I grow up, I want to, I want to do that, you know? 
And uh, he's definitely done that. He travels the world. He, he knew from an early age, that's what I want to be. For others, it's, it's a lot more of a, an exploratory process. And for me, I, I definitely wasn't sure who I was or even what I wanted to do. Uh, as a kid, um, I was actually pretty shy. Um, I, I'm tall, I'm six foot five. And I used to have bright red hair. Uh, my eyebrows are still red, but my hair's a little gray now. Uh, uh, so I, I was tall. I had red hair. I, I'm a preacher's kid. I used to get embarrassed really easy. If someone pulled me, you know, if the teacher said, hey, Mark, stand up and read something in class, my, my face would turn as red as my hair, you know. So, so I really struggled with a lot of insecurity and inferiority. I definitely didn't have confidence. And uh, it, it actually took other people probably to see in me what I didn't see in myself. I still remember a, a lunch. Um, I think I was late high school, maybe doing a couple of Bible college classes part-time. And one of my lecturers, uh, Ken Molman, took me out to lunch. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm just a lanky 17, 18-year-old kid. And um, somewhere in the lunch, he said something like, you know, Mark, you're a really good young man and God's hands on your life. And we can clearly see you're called to be a leader. And he just kind of rambled on and uh, and I remember leaving that lunch feeling about a foot taller than I actually was because obviously a lot of people had thought good things about me, but he, he was probably the first to actually put it into words mm. and to say, you know, God's hands on your life. He's called you. You're clearly got a great leadership gift. And so he put into words what probably other people saw, but I didn't see it in myself. And, you know, we, we often become what those around us believe in us and see us to become. So some people with confidence kind of emerge whatever people think. But, but for many of us, um, the influential people in our lives really shape us. So I describe myself as a reluctant leader. I kind of needed other people to, to kind of push. And so I just started following my interests. I got involved in basketball and I was pretty good at that. And so I thought maybe I'll do a career in that, but you know, in America, making the NBA is every kid's dream, but just, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's quite a bar. Um, played a bit of college ball. And, and then I started dabbling, like, it's interesting in music, here's an example. My mum played, played the piano, my dad played the piano, and my sister, Sharon, she's married to Frank DiMozio, she played the piano, plays the piano, written songs. And so my parents tried to get me to play the piano. I just wasn't interested. And so they didn't actually yeah. pressure me. They, they just, okay. You know, um, and so when I was about 13, uh, the music director in the church there, Mike Heron, like he was an amazing piano player. And I remember hearing him playing in church one day and going to mum, I, I want to play the piano now. I want to be like Mike, you know? And so um, I started doing lessons and, and I just loved it. Within a couple of years, I was playing a youth group. And so I guess what I'm saying is I just started following my interests, my curiosity. It was basketball, it was sport. I uh, mm. did a bit of builders renovation, kind of got involved in the printery. And, you know, so when I came back to Australia, like I wasn't sure career wise what I was going to do. I got offered a job in the printing department in National Mutual Insurance in the city. So I worked there for about five years. And then, then I was actually asked to lead the music ministry at our church as a volunteer. And it's like, whoa, okay, I'll give that a go. And so I did that and really loved it. Mm. And I, thought I'd be, I thought I'd be a music director the rest of my life. Like that was my mm. passion led worship on the first Integrity Music International album, All Nations Worship, just before Ron Canoli. That's probably names you guys don't even know. Um, this is well before Hillsong was kind of on the map, you know. So, so I did that and then came on staff as music director. And then a year later was asked to be youth pastor. It was kind of like, whoa, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, we'll give that a go. Got to get from out, out, out from behind the piano and learn to speak to youth. And so it felt like I was in the deep end and, 
but you know, really loved that. Thought I'd be a youth pastor the rest of my life. Did that for five years, and then I was asked to be church administrator. I was like, whoa, what's that? You know, uh, went and did a diploma in business management. Anyway, all, all I guess what I'm answering, Ben, is for me, um, my calling was an emerging. Take what's in front of me, mm. do it to the best of my ability commit to it like I might do this the rest of my life, but hold it lightly enough that I'm ready to take something new on. And so mine has been a journey. And I think sometimes we, we lock our calling to a particular role or job or expression. I think our calling is more about our gifts, our passions, what we're good at. And that may have different expressions throughout our life journey. I can look back now and realize I've had heaps of different roles, heaps of different responsibilities, but, but my calling is ultimately, you know, to serve God, to please him and to use my gifts for the yeah. benefit of others. And so, yeah, look, I would say to the young adults listening in, just fo- follow. You. I, I like the word curiosity, even more than calling, follow your curiosity. You know, wh- what are you curious about? What, what are you interested in? What, what energizes you? Here's a good one. What makes you angry? You know, sometimes what makes you angry mm. is the key to your calling. If you get really angry about injustice, guess what? You, you've probably got a call to, to, to be a, a champion for justice. If you get really angry about kind of people drifting in and out of church and not being followed up, well, you've probably got a bit of a pastoral heart. You know, if you get really angry about boring mm. stuff that's really predictable and boring and gray, you probably got a creativity gift. You're probably an artist. Add some color to the world. You know, yeah. if you get angry about disorganization, guess what? <laughs> you probably got an administrative gift to help organize this all. You, you following me? So, so um, I'd really follow your curiosity. Um, this is a sideline, and we hadn't kind of planned on talking about this, Ben, but I think the whole subject of decision-making and the will of God is really big for young adults. When, when, mm. I, was, when I was young, we used to hear this little phrase, I want to be in the center of God's will. You ever heard that? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It, it kind of implies that God's will is this big circle, and right in the middle is a dot, and you've got to find the dot. And if you don't, well, you're out of God's will. And to me, it's one of the most frustrating and paralyzing uh, teachings. And it's actually not biblical. Uh, I, I really love the story of Genesis 1 and 2, where God puts Adam and Eve in the garden. And um, there's all these trees, all these fruit trees. And God says, see this tree, don't eat of it. No, but all of the other trees, you are free to eat. So, so it's dinner time um, in Mr. and Mrs. Adam and Eve's house. What's God's will for dinner? Other trees. To, yeah, no, other trees and not to eat the one thing that he told you not to eat. <laughs> one, one no and dozens of yeses. Yeah. Mm. Can you see the freedom in God's will? And so it's a bit well, like, you know, when you get up in the morning, so it's, uh, okay, what's God's will today? Is it the blue shirt or the red shirt? You know, <laughs> um, could I suggest when you think about your career, what's God's will for your career? Well, there's some no's, you know, don't be a bank robber. Don't be a drug dealer. You know, don't be a terrorist. There's a few no's, but there's dozens of yeses. Yeah. Like, yeah, what, what do you want to do with your life? You know, uh, who, who are you going to marry? Well, there may be some no's, you know, some people that you go, well, there's just not some kind of compatibility there, but, but, but there's dozens, you know, uh, where are you going to live? Well, you, you see my point. I think 
if you ask me as a yeah. parent, if you ask me as a parent, what's God's will for my kids? Yeah, I, I just want them to live good lives, to be good humans, to make the world a better place. You know, I, I'm not saying to my son, Ashley, why are you living in Brunswick? You know, I wanted you to live in Blackburn. Yeah. You know, can you, can you see how controlling that view is of God as parent? And so I just think there's a lot more freedom in God's will than we realize. There's some no's, there's some boundaries, but outside of that, follow your heart, follow your curiosity, follow your passion, do things that energize you. I love the Chariots of Fire story, Eric Liddell, you know, people want him to be a missionary and he's wondered, you know, but, but, yeah. but I want to do the Olympics. And he, and he says this, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. God made me fast, you know? And so <laughs> yeah. I just encourage you, you know, read your okay. own heart, read your own heart, try some stuff. You'll find out what you're not good at. Um, you'll find out what you're good at and, and just, just get on the journey. You know, so, uh, some of you will, will, will know right away. Others, it'll take some while, uh, take a while. And that, that's all okay. Uh, that's awesome. Anyway, that, that was a long, that was a mm. long ramble. No, that's <laughs> so good. One of the things we keep coming back to on this podcast is, the idea of what is it that only I can do uh, in the kingdom of God. So that really fits into that well. Yeah. So over 30 years in ministry, 22 years as a senior pastor, throughout that time, how did you kind of prepare yourself for that next step up or maintain that commitment throughout probably what was like not an easy thing. Like I've only worked in church for a little bit of my life and <laughs> Ben and Heidi could probably speak more into this than me, but it's not the easiest thing to work in a church. How no. did you maintain that commitment to God and to your ministry throughout that time? Yeah, it's a really good uh, question, Ash. Um, I, I think it's a, a continual journey. You know, I, I apparently as a five, six-year-old made a, a commitment to Jesus at, at that age and at that understanding. And, and then, you know, I was kind of in church, but... You, you know, you have those times when you go, you go to a youth camp and you're all fired up and the next Sunday you're on the front row and then, you know, three or four months later, you kind of drift to the back row. And, you know, so I never had a huge kind of rebellion, you know, out, out of the church phase in my life, but I definitely had the yo-yo experience of ups and downs and mm. to the front and to the back. And, you know, your heart varies here and there. Um, I had a couple of experiences that were quite profound for me when I was, um, 16, 17, um, I've got an older sister. She's eight and a half years older, as I mentioned. She married and left home. So it's kind of like an only child growing up. We, we had a, a young man named Robert. He was 20. He was boarding uh, uh, with us um, when we lived in America. He was going to Bible college. And so I was kind of last last part of my high school, kind of ha had a pseudo older brother. We're getting to know each other. And without going uh, too in-depth in, in the story, we were on holidays one summer. He didn't come. We came home and the phone was ringing and it was uh, his best friend. And my dad took the phone call and um, tragically he'd drowned. There, there was uh, actually a young adults event and at the river and um, he got caught by a toe and, and underneath. And it was, it was just tragic. And I remember being at his funeral and uh, he was engaged. He had prophetic words. He's studying for the ministry. Like, just kind of God, what what in the world is going on? Mm. And um, in the funeral, they 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 read some of his journal. He, he was the person who journaled, and, and and I was really impacted by his journal and some of the things he he had said. His heart for God, um, really crazy stuff. Like God, God, if I don't know, if I can't know you more, I just want to die and come and be with you. Really kind of freaky kind of stuff. 
but mm. but his journal impacted me and, and i guess as a young 16 17 year old as i sat in his funeral i just thought my goodness wow. life really is frail life is short and at his funeral in fact the very next day i, I went and got myself a a a um, folder and, and i started a journal the next morning and, wow. and I, I freshly dedicated my life to god and I, I had numbers of times earlier, but, but you know, from that day, I just kind of, life is short. I don't understand what's happened, but Jesus, I, I, I commit my life afresh to you today that uh, I got one life to live. And, you know, I've had my ups and downs, but, but I've never really looked back from, from that moment. So that was a defining moment in my life it was a tragedy. And, um, you know, I still don't understand why, why he died at 20 but i hope to see him one day and i'm going to say robert you only lived 20 years but but your life your death impacted my life wow. and so yeah. that, that was a real defining moment for me and then not long after that you know i grown up in church around church preacher's kid and, and i really had this kind of desire to know yeah. god for myself everyone's talking about god and i you know i prayed and i read the bible and so i decided to take a three-day fast and um in this house we lived in america had a basement first floor upstairs and then an attic and so i went up there with my bible and, and, my, and my journal and a pen and said to mom and dad uh, see you later i'm taking three days you know i'm gonna hit i, I want to get to oh, i really want to encounter god you know so anyway so um first day went by uh, nothing happened um second day you know reading my bible doodling my journal you know nothing much happening get, getting pretty hungry by the third day, like I, I'm, I'm really hungry now, and, and you know God hasn't showed up, and mm. it's kind of mid after, you know, early afternoon, and I'm pretty annoyed. Like I'm God, I'm here. Like I, I want to know you, you know, I, I want to encounter you, and you know, where, where are you, you know? And I, I was probably a, a, a little tick, you know. Anyway, I was just flipping through my Bible as you do, and and I came to First Samuel three, and, and I still remember the moment. It was really profound for me, and and it's the story of young Samuel. And uh, I just started reading it. And I don't know if you've had that moment where you're reading the Bible and it's like time stands still. And it's one of those kind of holy moments. And, and you know the story, um, Samuel's there and God calls him. But it says, Samuel didn't yet recognize the voice of the Lord. And so he goes to Eli, the old priest says, hey, Eli, you're calling me now. Anyway, three times it happens. And eventually Eli figures out God's trying to call Samuel. You know, go, go lay down again. And, and when you hear that voice say, speak, Lord, your servant is is listening so i'm reading this story and yeah. <laughs> I, I then had this flood of thoughts and i just started writing in my journal and basically i sensed god speaking to me for the first time and basically the message was mark i'm speaking to you all the time but you haven't yet learned to recognize my voice you're looking for the spectacular i was waiting for the angel the scroll from heaven the booming voice and he says, you're missing the simple ways I speak to you through your parents, through the preacher on the weekend, through the Bible, through the Holy Spirit. And it, it was the first time I could say I actually heard God speaking to me for myself. Mm. And, wow. you know, so to answer your question, Ash, I had numbers of commitment times, but, but I think particularly for young adults, you know, and we can talk some more about this. It's very easy to have what I'd call a socialized faith, mm. which, which is we grew up in a village, a family, a tribe uh, that has a set of values and for many a religious system. And so this is the construct that we emerge within. Mm. And so we learn to live and move within it. But other people have created that for us. 
and they've influenced us through the environment. And we inherit that, particularly if you've grown up in church. But but at some point, we, we actually have to find what's real for ourselves. And, you know, whether that's a, a sense of conversion, uh, it may be dramatic or a specific point of time, or it might just emerge. But at some point, uh, we have to find God for ourselves. And so, so the, the, the funeral, Robert's death was a defining moment. And then this three-day experience of learning to hear God for myself was, was also um, quite, quite influential for me. And, and then I guess along the way, you know, you, you're regularly having to reinforce your calling. You know, I like that teaching. I think it's Matthew 11 where Jesus says, come yeah. to me, all you are burdened and weary, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And uh, the idea there is it's an agricultural metaphor of an old oxen and a young oxen being yoked together. And the idea is as the young oxen learns to keep in step with the older oxen, they'll plow the field together. Two problems. If the young oxen tries to run ahead, it's going to be pretty, pretty, you know, darn painful. Uh, or if the young oxen stand still and lags behind, it's going to be pretty uncomfortable. The challenge for the young oxen is to learn to keep in step with that harness. <laughs> and eventually you'll plow the field. And for me, uh, as a young leader, there were times when I was running ahead and things are moving too slow. And <laughs> why isn't this changing? And, you know, I knew what it was to really, you know, and then there are other times when I kind of, oh, well, you know, and you just kind of, dig your heels in and drag along a little bit. So I, I had seasons of pushing ahead and seasons of dragging behind. Uh, but o over time, I learned to just say, okay, God, we'll get this field plowed. Not today, not tomorrow, but learning just to keep in step. And, and so I had moments, you know, I would say on your gauges, there are two gauges on your dashboard. One is fulfillment and one is frustration. And both gauges are always yeah. moving. <laughs> And the, the danger is when your frustration gauge is really high and your fulfillment gauge is really low. If, if that's the case and you're there for a long period, that's actually really dangerous for you and everyone else. And maybe you're in the wrong role, the wrong place, the wrong position. But there's always frustrations, but hopefully your fulfillment, your joy mm. is, is bumping up higher than the frustration. And that'd be the same in any job that, that uh, those of you who are listening in today, any job you've got, you're going to have both of those moving. So, yeah, so, so, so there'd just be a few thoughts around, I think commitment is something that you have moments of, of commitment, uh, but then there's also times of, of reinforcing and renewing that. Mm, that's really, really good insights there. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure people will be sitting there taking notes <laughs> to everything that you're saying, right? Um, I, I have been just on my paper here as well. Um, um, we were really hoping as well that, um, you know, there's, yeah. there's a lot going on in our world at the moment and there's a few hot topics going around and things like that. And we were just wondering whether you had some current insights into some of the, the hurdles that this generation are facing. And if I can just add on to that question as well, um, throughout your time in ministry as well, I'm, I would assume that a lot of things have changed and shifted um, and, and that you've been able to witness a lot of the changes yeah. happening in the church and in, in the younger generations too. Um, so just wondering what, there's a, there's a few little um, sub questions here, but yeah. um, what have been some of the good things that you've seen by way of change in the church lately? And, and also what are some of the things that we should be cautious of? Yeah. Any insights into that stuff? 
Yeah, look, I mean, I think there's a lot of positives in in the overall broader church. Um, I mean, there's been a, a clear generational shift that's taken place, you know, and it's not old versus young or young versus old. It's old and young together. And if we can have the wisdom of the a little bit older and the passion of the younger together, you've got a, a great dynamic. But, you know, there's been a, a real generation shift. I mean, back when I was in, in youth group here in Melbourne, you know, if you look at all the senior ministers around the city, it was Alan Meyer, it was Stuart Robinson, it was Kevin Connor and Philip Hills and Alan Davies, you know, they were, they were all kind of 60 plus, you know, so that was the builder generation, as it were. And I remember uh, when I became senior minister of, of the church, I was 33, you know, and, and inherited a church with a thousand people attending. I think other than Phil Baker is probably one of the youngest mega church pastors in the country, you know, but there's been a real generational shift. You can see that uh, with, with, with mm. churches right across the city. And so with a generational shift comes generational change. And I remember when Nicole and I became senior ministers, you know, we got young kids. So, I mean, man, we're, we're, we're interested in the children's ministry. And my, my dad had, you know, it's not that he didn't love kids, but, you know, uh, we had three hour services back in those days. My dad would preach for an hour in the book of Revelation and we'd worship till whenever. And, you know, so it wasn't, it wasn't bad, but, but, you know, if you've got young kids and young families and, you know, uh, we went from my dad preaching on the book of Revelation to me doing a seven part series on better homes and families, you know, talking about parenting and those kinds of things. So with the generational shift, I think, like I said, it's not about old versus young, but you, you, you continually are thinking more relevantly for your generation and the next younger generation. So you can see that right across the wider church world as there's been a generational shift, which I think has is, is been really good. You know, our message doesn't change, but our methods have to be continually reviewed and updated so that they're, they're relevant and our, our language and, you know, church facilities and all those kinds of things. So, so there, there've been some positive, I think also Heidi, there's been a, a broader emphasis on justice and compassion ministries. I think that's been really, really good. You know, it's not just, you know, Jesus died on the cross so you can go to heaven when you die, you know, uh, kind of sin management. But, but, you know, Jesus is actually interested in life here and now. So I think that's been really positive. Uh, I think discipleship, spiritual formation, small groups, missions, you know, there's, there's been a whole emerging emphasis around some of those areas. You know, on the downside, you know, I think, look, we, we do live in, in a consumeristic society. And so consumerism is, is alive and well. You know, it's a very different world pastoring today. You know, I remember talking to Erwin McManus about this and he was saying, you know, you go back a couple of generations, the pastor was the most educated person in the village mm. and everyone came to church and, and the pastor was your primary spiritual voice. And so you came there for your spiritual feeding and often education. And, and that's the way it was. You know, you fast forward today. And uh, I mean, education, yeah, right. education is available for everybody. Mm. And, you know, the pastor is no longer the primary voice. People could be listening to T.D. Jakes and um, Stephen Furtick and Joyce Meyer and whoever all week. Like you're no longer the primary voice. You may not even be the major voice. Mm. And if people come once or twice a week, uh, mm. once or twice a month, um, you know, we now have a much flatter um, kind of structure and even with, COVID-19, I mean, there are people dialing in, watching all kinds of church services around the world. It's like, who do we want to listen to today, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> a, a friend of mine, Robert Morris in Dallas, Gateway Church, I think I had 250,000 views of their Easter service. 
And then Christ Fellowship in uh, Florida, where John Maxwell's on the teaching team, they had a million views of their Easter service. So, I mean, that's huge. I mean, like, like it's great to see the reach, but you just wonder, you know, how many of those are connected? You know, yeah. uh, how many are, are actually growing, serving, contributing financially? Like, like the dashboard has totally changed. So mm. it's a very interesting time in the church world. Very difficult for pastors and leaders. Very difficult for people too. So, um, yeah, anyway, they're, they're just a few thoughts about the current environment. Yeah, I think I think you're so on the money where you you said that like you know the pastor's not the most educated person in the village now, and, and there's so much information, and with yeah. that there's so much philosophy, there's so much scientific evidence, as people like to put it, um, that's yeah. sort of coming either for our faith or against our faith. And I remember having a conversation with you just a couple of weeks back when we were talking. You said something about um, not getting rid of the mystery of our faith. Mm. Um, now I know I know we haven't sort of planned to talk about this, but would you could you like elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, look, it, it's a really good question, um, and maybe I'll come at it uh, indirectly just through building on something I said a little earlier. I think sure. if we were to map out many of people's faith journey, we, we do start with what I call construction. We, we grow up in a context, and we often inherit a belief system, particularly if you grew up in a church home. Secondly, hopefully we have some kind of conversion where we actually embrace those beliefs for ourselves personally, whether that's a dramatic moment or an emergence over time. You know, for many young people, that's, that's the whole story. I grew up in a Christian home, but Jesus is real for me. I believe the Bible. I had a personal experience with God and that's good enough. And so their journey goes one, two, and it serves them the rest of their life. And I know 50 year olds that are married, got kids and that's worked for them. But many people go to the third step where they start to, at some point, have questions and doubts. Mm. And, you know, they start to critique their construct. Maybe they go to uni at Monash and, you know, their, their class on philosophy or, or whatever, you know, throws a couple of bombs in there that, you know, archaeologically, there's no evidence for anything in the Old Testament right up to Daniel, which, which mm. is true. We have no archaeological evidence for Abraham, Solomon, even King David, like, like there's now we have literature, but, but they did, you know, there's until Assyria and Darius. Now there's a lot of stuff around there. Um, you go to St. Petersburg and the, uh, the, um, the, the museum there, the state hermitage has amazing reliefs of, of Babylon and, and, and Daniel's time. And anyway, so, so something happens and people start to have questions or doubts. And this usually centers around things like the existence of hell why is there suffering in the world? How can the Christian faith be so exclusive? Is the Bible really reliable? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? And why are Christians so homophobic? You know, they're the big questions and doubts that come in. And so out of that third step of questions and doubts, some go into number four that I'd call deconstruction where they actually start to pull out what I call some of the Jenga blocks. You know what Jenga blocks are? You know, yeah, we kind yeah. of build our tower, but what happens is we start to pull out some of the Jenga blocks that our parents gave us or our teacher gave us or our pastor, mm -hmm. our authority figure. And after a while, you start pulling enough of those out and you start doubting and questioning. For some people, that whole tower <laughs> comes crashing down mm -hmm. and they're not even sure if they believe anything they inherited. And some move into stage five, which I'd call deconversion. 
where everything's so deconstructed that they don't know what to believe anymore. What was wow. once true for them is no longer true. And, and they actually feel hypocritical to, to declare allegiance to a construct that no longer works for them. Yeah. Um, you might've heard of Joshua Harris, you know, who wrote, I kissed dating goodbye. Like he said, I'm not a Christian anymore. Marty Sampson wrote a heap of the Hillsong hit songs. He's going, yeah. he, he has deconstructed. Um, he, he's had doubts. He's pulled all these Jenga blocks down and now actually said, I'm not a Christian anymore. So th this is not new. It's happening. And, and some people end there, but I think the, the, the next step, number six, I, I'd put as reconstruction, mm. where it's now time to build a new world with what truly has meaning and value and truth yeah. to you. You know, you begin to think for yourselves, you begin to choose what's authentic, what you really believe, apart from what others have told you you should believe. And so I don't actually see this journey as wrong or bad. It, it's just a reality. But often in this reconstruction, you start to go, well, what's true for me? What do I really believe? And you start kind of building your own tower again with Jenga blocks that you're really committed to. Now, now I say all that to get back to where, we, where, where your question was, Ben, is that I, I do think, you know, we, we should look for reasons for our faith. You, you know, uh, Peter says, um, always be ready to give a reason. The, the Greek word is apologeo. Uh, from which we get apologetics to give a reason and answer for the faith that you have. And so there are reasons for us to believe. And so I would encourage any young adults listening in today, you know, there are some really intelligent, you know, you know, faith doesn't mean throwing your brain out. And mm. so, you know, whether it's the Ravi Zacharias or John Lennox or, you know, um, Francis Collins, the language of God, uh, you know, William Lane Craig, you know, C.S. Lewis is a classic, but, but there are a lot of great people that have actually grappled with every question you have, every doubt you have, someone else <laughs> yeah. has had it. Yeah, and, I love and, it. And I would, I would say, don't run from your doubts. Um, I think we were talking last time about sometimes doubt can be the back door to a strong faith. Well, doubt, doubt is very different than unbelief. Unbelief is saying, I don't believe. Yeah. Doubt is saying, I'm not sure. And, and you know, I think we, we, dear Thomas, I think gets a bad rap. You know, we, we call him Doubting Thomas. Jesus never called him Doubting Thomas. In fact, mm. the, the Gospels say all, all of them doubted. Mm. But, but Thomas wasn't there when Jesus rocked up and he goes, unless I see, I'm not going to believe. He, he's saying, I don't want to be gullible. Uh, I don't want to just... Mm you know, believe some hype, I, I, I want to see, I, I want some validity for the faith. And then he sees him and he goes, my Lord and my God, he had his yeah. own experience with Jesus. Mm. So, so, so doubt is not something to run from. And so I'd say, pursue the questions, you know, you, you want to talk about hell. There's some, there's some great writings about, about views on hell and, and all those questions I mentioned there, Bible, but like lean into apologetics if, if that's the way you're wired. But I'd say with doing that, there are certain things that I don't think we'll ever fully understand with our mind. There's a mystery to God. God is bigger than the church. He's even bigger than Christianity, believe it or not. Like if God is God, he fills the whole world. He fills the whole universe. And, and there's a mystery to God. You know, I think it was um, Soren Kierkegaard who said, you know, you know, faith has its reasons, but there are there are some aspects to faith that reason 
can't can't comprehend you know so so if if you want to put everything in a box have everything watertight have every loose end tied up have everything you know propositional truth was kind of the the the, the thing of the last generation it is you know here's the proposition and here's all the arguments and and it's watertight well I, I don't think God works that way. You know, God has a way of regularly busting out of our boxes and breaking our paradigms. Yeah, Book wow. of Acts. You know, I mean, Peter's Peter's preaching to some Gentiles, and you know, they they're filled with the Spirit. He's kind of going, "What's going on here? You know, how can this be happening?" God has a way of breaking our paradigms, and so I, I would say, pursue your doubts, pursue your questions, lean into the intellectual pursuit, but but at the end of it all. You know, even, even the science, even the science, you go down science and you think that's going to answer all your questions. You think the Big Bang's the answer to it all? Well, what was there before the Big Bang? Well, yeah, well, you know, mm. what about consciousness? You know, science still hasn't been able to explain. Mm. I, I was there at the birth of my children and saw them take their first breath. You know, I, I've been at the bedside of people and seen them take their last breath. But like, like where does that breath come from? Where does it go? Science can't, can't answer that. You know, <laughs> consciousness is still a mystery. A anyway, so I, I would just say, pursue your questions, pursue your doubts. It's okay to deconstruct and actually go, what's true and real for me and pursue truth. But at the same time, uh, make, time make allowance for mystery. Mm. I think I mentioned this last time, Ben, and I'll finish up on, on this point. You know, Paul in the New Testament probably had more revelation than anyone else in the Christian world. He wrote most of the New Testament. And in 1 Corinthians 13, which is about love, you know, he says, you know, you can have great knowledge, you can have great power, you can have all these great things, but if you don't love, you're nothing. And in the end, he goes, we all know in part. It's a bit like looking through a glass darkly. Uh, he says, one day we'll see perfectly as we are seen, but right, but right now we don't. Here's a guy who knows more than anyone. He says, you know what? I don't get it all. I don't have all the answers. I don't see everything perfectly. But then he goes, but there are three things that remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest is love. And so sometimes I look on Twitter and social media and all of the debates and the heat and the intensity of emotion you know, about who's right and who's wrong. And it's just like a bunch of kids in a sandpit, you know, and, and Paul's going, you know, I, I don't have all the answers. I, I, don't, I, I don't actually see it all just yet. And, and you know what's more important than all of this argument is faith, hope, and love. And what's more important is how you treat people. You know, be kind, be kind, be forgiving, be, have a bit of self-control. So yes, wow. mystery. Mystery, I think, um, is vital to the Christian faith. Yeah. Excellent. A sense of awe and wonder where you just look at a sunset and you go, that is unbelievable. How did that Love get it, here? I, I don't know, but it takes my breath away. C.K. Chesterton said, the world does not lack for wonders, but for wonder. Come on. Oh, masterfully answered, mate. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So good. Um, I think we've got one more question uh, for you because we'd love to hear your perspective. You know, we've talked a lot about your past, uh, yep. your present. We also just want to um, ask this last question of what do you think God is speaking to you about the future, about you personally and for the church? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting time, isn't it? I don't think anyone had COVID nineteen on their on their twenty twenty plan. It's it's <laughs> it's been a crazy year, you know. I, um, someone in a, in a newspaper article said this is a generation generational catastrophe, which is a 
interesting phrase, but if you think of this year with the bushfires and the Black Lives Matter, um, you know, rallies and, and then throw on top of that COVID-19, COVID it, it really is a, a, unprecedented is a word we use a lot, but, but it is an unprecedented year. I, I think on that, um, there's an Old Testament scholar called Walter, Walter Brueggemann, and uh, his, his book on the Psalms is quite profound, but he talks about the journey of faith often follows an arc of orientation where life is good and you know everything's going well uh, the lord is my shepherd laying down by still waters and green pastures orientation then without doubt at some point we move into disorientation where things aren't going well i'm in the valley now of the shadow of death and there's enemies around and and in disorientation it's god where are you what is going on and you've got psalms of lament which we don't normally sing <laughs> the book of lamentations is a cry in, in a time of disorientation where jerusalem's burnt with fire <laughs> and so disorientation hits all of our lives and then thirdly reorientation where we actually don't go back to where we were but god does a new thing um, behold i do a new thing and, and even in psalm 23 he doesn't go back to the green pastures. He ends up in the house of the Lord where he says, surely goodness and mercy are going to follow me all the days of my life. And, mm-hmm. and so I think that's a really good pattern for our own life. I'm sure all those listening uh, to the podcast today, you, you've had days of sunshine and orientation. God's good. Life's good. I'm sure you've all had moments of disorientation where the sky is falling and it's my God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? And then hopefully we've had those springtime moments. We're out of the winter of deadness and darkness and dampness. It's like there's a bud, there's a blossom and and something new is coming. And so our faith takes that journey. Our life takes that journey. Even society takes that. And I think right now we're in the middle of a major disorientation. Mm. Our social order is being totally disrupted. And so I think the question is, uh, what, 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 what's the future? What's the new? And, you know, there was a, there was a, a survey done in Britain and only 9% of Brits wanted life to go back as it was when COVID's over. Yeah, wow. wow. That's pretty profound. That's People were good. saying, I want my life to be different. I don't want to spend two hours commuting to work. I don't, wow. I, I want more time with my family. I want to look after my health. And so this disorientation, as dark as it is, can be a gift to us in that we start to really reconsider what's important to us. Mm-hmm. And so all of that to say for the church, and look, I coach a lot of pastors and some of them are just keen to get back meeting together. I'm just going, look, you know, don't be the early adopter in getting back together. You know, you don't want to be that church that meets again and COVID breaks out, you know, mm-hmm. just, just embrace this current reality. But, you know, when you do... You, you move forward, what, what needs to change? Like, like this is a really good opportunity. You've had a, mm-hmm. a huge holy pause. And so don't just rewind and play. Don't just go back to what was, what, what could be different? You know, what um, the, the Chinese word for crisis, Ouija, Ouija, I think it is, is two words and, and it's the word danger and opportunity. Wow. wow. So every crisis is two things. Get your Asians to pronounce that for me properly. Mm-hmm. It's it's danger and there is real danger. And all these people that are protesting, either this virus is real or it's not. I've got a friend whose daughter got the virus and almost died. Let me tell you, this virus is real. So, so, so there is danger, but there is opportunity to go, okay, well, 
we could reset. Maybe we could do some, do some things really differently moving forward. So mm-hmm. I think it's an opportunity, Ben, for the church. It's an opportunity for ourselves personally uh, to really rethink our lives. And so um, it, it could be an opportunity to actually see some good come out of well, what has been a horrible and a terrible time. And wow. so I, I, I'm not quite sure, but, but I think church on the other side, you know, I hear, hear some people saying, hey, it's been great meeting in my small group via Zoom. I don't have to travel an hour. So maybe on the other side of this, we'll meet once a month in person and then have a, a Zoom catch up, you know. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, it's just rethinking. Um, I was talking to someone from City Life the other day and we, we, they got this program called Life Tracks, And we talked for years about putting it online. And I hear they've now got it online and there's a huge take up, you know, because <laughs> the training is available online, you know. Um, it's just one. It's just one example. So I, I do think there's an opportunity to really rethink everything we're doing, and be very um, selective in what what we carry moving forward. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there, there are a few th- thoughts there, but but I think ultimately we just have to pause and say, well, well God, God, what are you up to? Mm. You know, what what are you saying to me during this time? Um, I'm a big believer in, in providence. You know, I don't believe in determinism. Well, it's happening, so it must be God's will. I think there are multiple forces in the world. I don't believe in existentialism. Well, there's no plan, there's no purpose. Just make your own kind of deal. I, I think providence, and I like the, mm. the metaphor of jazz. You know, in jazz, there's improvisation, there's dissonance, there's discord, but underneath it, the music is moving somewhere. There's this chord sequence, yeah. and I... I think life is a bit more like a jazz band. You know, um, you make decisions, other people make decisions, Dan Andrews making decisions, there's improvisation, there's discord, there's tension, but underneath all this cacophony of sound and activity, the hand of providence is at work. Like the story's moving forward. God's up to something. Even Joseph, you know, when he met his brothers after 13 long years in prison, he says, you meant it for evil. Yep. Genesis 50, 20. Mm. You meant it for evil. Like he, he's not denying it. He's saying it's bad. It, it was hurtful. It was abusive. It was painful. You meant it for evil, but God used it for good. Mm. That, that's providence. Oh, uh, he's, not say, he's not saying, you know, God did it or God caused it, but there's this interaction of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. So amidst all that's happening, all the decisions we're making, people are making, I think there's this hand of providence underneath it. And so I, I think it's important that we pause and go, God, what are you up to? What are you saying to me personally? What, what, what does this mean for me? What do you want me to do? How should I respond to this mm. mo- moment in history? Mm. Amen. Okay. <laughs> so good. Incredible. So good, mate. Not allowed to preach on a podcast, are you? No, no. no. <laughs> I think. Uh, I think sometimes. Yeah. I think sometimes when you like, you've just answered those questions so masterfully. And there's, to be honest with you, we could probably go for four hours just trying to dissect <laughs> like the bombs that you've, the truth bombs that you've presented out there. So I really appreciate that, man. Really, yeah, been, really well, it's and it's so helpful. I enjoy talking and and thinking and interacting. So it's been a, it's been a great conversation today. Really. Enjoy being a part of it and uh, really pray for all, all the listeners that um, you'll, uh, I, I see what I love about a podcast. It's a conversation yeah. and you've been talking before this podcast and I really hope you'll keep talking more. In fact, my goal in communicating is not to answer all your questions today, but hopefully ask you some more questions yeah. so yeah. that after this podcast, there'll be more conversations than there were before. 
we were going to ask as well, is there any ways that people can yeah, read more of your stuff, your books, yeah. your blog posts and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah. So my website is Mark Connor and Connor is E-R, not O-R. Jimmy Connor's kind of ruined my last name. Um, yeah. So it's Mark, Mark Connor, C-O-N-N-E-R.com.au. So on that website, I have a podcast. So he put my messages on there. I blog regularly. I just started a new little three to four minute video called Soul Food with Mark Connor. It comes out every Wednesday. It's on Instagram TV. It's on Facebook. It's got a YouTube channel. And so if you just search Soul Food with Mark Connor, it started last week. I'm doing a series on self-care right now. Self-care is not selfish. The best gift you can give others is you taking care of yourself. So there's a little video cast happening there. And so anyway, all the links are on the, on the website, markconnor.com.au. Uh, so um, check it out we'll, we'll put that link under this um, podcast and make sure that people get onto that as well mm. great great great. Mark thanks you so much There's so much gold in that and um, mm. yeah really looking forward to hearing how it's impacted the people that are listening uh, we mm. appreciate your time and for everyone listening we hope this has blessed you and we'll catch up with you next time come on Woo. awesome Bye. Go well. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. For more information, visit markconnor.com.au.